I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Club. The podcast where we, two best friends, talk about celebrity memoirs in the best way we know how. You guys, we have a crazy special episode today. We had planned to make our Lena Dunham coverage a one and done, a one and a half and done. We did a podcast episode. We did a Patreon episode and we moved on our merry way until we got the DM of a lifetime. Caroline Calloway, you may know her from the internet and honestly nowhere else, (laughs) reached out to us to defend the one and only Lena Dunham. And we thought, oh my God, a dream come true. There's truly no one better qualified to defend Lena Dunham. And no one who would, I think, besides Caroline. And so I'm so happy that she was able to come over and have a conversation with us. We ranted and raved for truly hours. We (laughs) do not have time to even get into how our weeks were. Because honestly, this is how our week was. Our week was mostly just fighting with Caroline Calloway on July 4th, America's oldest and most treasured pastime. So without further ado, welcome Caroline Calloway. just ask me. Welcome, Caroline Calloway, to our studio. We are here. Caroline reached out to us as a defender of Lena Dunham. She has listened to the podcast. If you guys haven't listened to our first Lena Dunham episode or our Lena Dunham Patreon, it is not quite a secret that we didn't adore her book, Not That Kind of Girl. And Caroline reached out to us and said, you guys are looking at it all wrong. And I I wanted to like Lena Dunham. And I Did you? That's such a lie. Yeah, it's a lie. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. I feel like you have some deep-seated anger issues around how you were forced to earn your own money and like really kind of project those onto anyone who you feel like had it easy. Well, I actually don't think that's true. I actually think I do. I think my deep seated anger issues are actually that people think that I don't pay my own bills and I have worked very hard my whole life. And so it's not even that I've had to work hard. It's that I work so hard and then people think I don't work hard. Oh, that's and then I'm just like, what the fuck? Well, I think you can be both. I give off big heiress energy. I mean, like people literally think that I'm like worth millions and like I'm very much from a parking lot in Virginia, like basically born, raised in like a blockbuster parking lot. That's my whole suburb, strip mall, Barnes and Noble, like pay less shoes like that's that was my aesthetic growing up but um I think you can both be mad that people are making assumptions about you and feel uh angry at the unfairness of people who had it easier I don't think it's a binary we'll we'll dive into more Lena Dunham in a second just because I think that's where it starts but it's definitely not the majority of it for me so speaking of it what was your opinion of Lena Dunham pre-reading this book or just in general that makes you want to defend her this was my third time reading the book oh my god um, wow. yeah I mean I read it when it came out in 2014 and then I think I read it again at some point in some sort of like I don't know airport situation where like I just like needed a book like what's on hand yeah. what's on yeah. hand sort of thing like Except maybe the Hudson n- News. maybe like found it in like a European hostel yeah. in like the abandoned bookshelf and was like okay I'll read this and then again for this and I really really liked it I I don't even know where to get in to it rereading it now the things that stood out to me most were the ending of the book where she talks about being in an airport I think with like smudged eyeliner that line still stays with me and I really loved that she included the food list because I feel like our culture really thinks that like girls can't be smart and intellectual and successful and profound and be obsessed with their bodies. It's like you have to pick which type of woman you are. And I never had an eating disorder, but I mean, 
Which girl out there has never opened a blank page in a new diary and written down everything that they've eaten or want to eat in the next day? And that happened to me. And it really like it really released some shame for me just seeing a woman who had been so successful with her art and is so smart and has so many other interesting thoughts populating her head. It really like untied a knot in my chest just knowing that like women as interested in other things doing things with their lives could still fucking write down every single thing that they ate that day it's interesting to me that you say that because I have a very different perspective of society and what it expects of women these days and that I am a big believer in like the new Amal Clooney arm candy model which is that I feel like we are now in a society where it's not enough to be beautiful there isn't this dichotomy of like the hot young trophy wife and then the smart accomplished woman that now to be a trophy wife even you have to have gone to a top school you have to have this impressive job and I joke all the time about these women I know who I feel like have these like impressive resume jobs so that they can get married and I was in a relationship where I almost felt like there was this expectation where it's like well of course you went to Columbia because that makes you good enough to be a stay-at-home mom for me for me it didn't release anything in my mind because I do feel like especially in New York City and especially like on the coastal elites if you're going to be a successful woman and there's a lot of fat phobia in this but if you're successful and controlled and doing what it takes to be in finance to be in the art world to be wherever you're probably also waking up at 5 a.m. and going to Barry's boot camp twice in a row because that's what a successful smart woman is. It's somebody who's in control of everything from the soul to the brain to the body. I also wanted to add, I think that it's interesting to me that you said that you felt released by her listing her food because she never says she suffered from an eating disorder. She but neither says, did I. Right. And I have. And I found her food list to be like kind of patronizing because she calls it the deepest, most shameful thing that exists on her computer. And I found that to be honestly just obnoxious to be like look at this pretty normal thing I did can you fucking handle it and it's like my food list was psycho again it's hard for me to untie this book from her public persona but she has put herself as this leader of stop paying attention to bodies bodies don't matter whenever she loses weight and people praise her she's like stop praising me that's not important but then in this book she also has lines like I lost 15 pounds because I was so sad, but I, I was too sad to enjoy it. Things like that, where it's like, do you care or do you not care? It's really hard for me to identify where you even are right now. Okay, so two different things here, both of which I want to get into. One about the food thing, I think you have every right to be like, you've gone through something so much more difficult. You have every right to be like, you know what, this is not for me. This food mm-hmm. section, not for me. But I do think think that you overshoot the mark when you say it shouldn't exist at all because there are some girls who haven't had eating disorders like me I didn't know who, that who, can who I tell that? you are the we didn't as a podcast know that anybody hasn't had an eating disorder it's really quite <laughs> shocking to disordered me. eating I mean I was literally an addict and like very suicidal and have depression and but you were getting three meals in a day <laughs> yeah, like, yeah 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 okay. yeah dad killed himself but like three meals a day sort of vibes but but stressing about it and you know I think you overshoot the mark when you say like this shouldn't exist because like girls like me deserve to have our experiences we deserve to have books that help us and feel less shame like yeah. as you deserve to have books that relate to your experience so that's that point I need to come back to what you're saying about the trophy wife thing I think you're totally correct as well But I think my complaint with your argument Mm -hmm. is the two things that I think that you guys really get wrong about this book. One is I feel like your expectations of memoir are really uneducated about what the genre of memoir is versus autobiography, biography, essay, journals, or diaries. That's number one complaint is Mm -hmm. like expectations are wrong. And the other thing is that, you know, in art history... 
the number one thing we're taught to do is to look at art in the context of when it was made. I mean, we give it a lot of credit for BuzzFeed lists. <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, you actually complained about listicles and like really cited them as I'll get to this in my yeah. in my rebuttals. But um, but, you know, I actually researched to look into when listicles were invented. So this book came out in 2014. This is a perfect example of how you're not looking at this book in the context of the time it was published. Mm -hmm. Published 2014 means it was written 2012, 2013, right? It takes like almost a year, nine months to get something printed and bound. And publishing houses really like to plan out their calendar ahead. So 2012, it's being written. BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti who mm -hmm. founded BuzzFeed. Yes. He hired Politico's Ben Smith, who is commonly credited with coining the site's famous listicles. In 2011, the form of listicles was one year old when Lena Dunham was writing this. And, you know, I think what you were saying about Kendra Wilkinson's memoir, like she is running up the page count. I would believe that more for someone who, and I want to be careful not to be like, Kendra is a sex worker, so she's dumb and she runs up page count. We hate the double standard, but Kendra. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I just, I want to be precise with my words and say like, Lena Dunham is a writer. She writes for her job. Words are her job. In screenplays, in books, words are her job. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's that unrealistic to say that Lena Dunham was responding to like the form, the new trends that writers and her peers in New York media were doing in a way that Kendra Wilkinson was not, not because she's dumb, because she's a sex worker, just because she's not a writer. Her job is not words. She's not interested in trends in New York media elite. So I think that that's one really good example of how you guys aren't looking at this in the context of when this book was written and published. And I agree that now women do need degrees but like we're standing on the shoulders of books like this that came out in 2014 it's all progress I think Lena Dunham would agree with you hypothetically with what you're saying about like how things have changed but like you know this book exists in 2012 when it was written I do want to say really quick before we yeah. get into some of the deeper points just like a clarification my issue is not that the listicles exist it's mm -hmm. where they're placed and what they're even about about they do not feel like they add anything to the book I mean to have it in the bodies section what's in my bag where she just lists what's in her bag in the friendship section 10 reasons I love New York which is just like things that she couldn't figure out how to write into these essays that was my issue with it I think you know putting a listicle in here is fine if they add to the overall piece but I just didn't feel like they did. That opinion is totally valid. There are going to be some places where I feel like I can really be like, all right, you guys are just wrong because history and facts are on my side and you're just factually incorrect. But this is one place where like this is just subjective. I thought they really added to the book. I was so hyper aware when reading this book how much attention to detail Lena Dunham had paid. Like even just look at the inside cover, this sticker sort of Baroque silk wallpaper by Peyton Turner of Flat Vernacular. And just like the way that she got that illustrator who did like so many of the American Girl Doll books to make all the illustrations. And did you notice that every single little page break is a different thing in the whole book? Every mm -hmm. single page break is its own tiny illustration. Lena Dunham had to ask an illustrator to do that in the same way that the images and the attention to detail visually. I think the page breaks are a nice break for a reader. You just didn't like them and didn't find them helpful, but I found them really restful as a reader. You know, how do you make a book 
that talks about heavy things that's still really light and breezy and a beach read and something someone reaches for mm-hmm. at a European hostel, you know, when they want something on vacation. And I think listicles are effective vehicle for that. And I also think that some of them are really good. Like, I love how you cited specific things in the book that you didn't like about those listicles. So like one listicle that I really liked was 18 unlikely things I've said flirtatiously. My nickname in high school was Blowjob Lena, but because I gave no blowjobs. Like when you call a fat guy Skinny Joe, the little things in it, like I think they're so much smarter than actual listicles. And even the what's in my bag, I saw that as again playing with the form of what was at the time in 2012 an emerging digital media trend and elevating it with her. So one of my big arguments about this book that I actually wasn't able to get into and like verbalize in the first podcast, I put it more in the Patreon. I find this book to be dishonest, honestly. Why? So I would like to get to the listicle. So number four of what's in my bag, Advil, Lexapro, Mucinex, Clonopin, and Tamiflu for emotional security. If you have any spare pills, I will take those too, just to up the diversity of my portfolio. To be clear, I rarely take them. It's a knowledge is power situation, sort of. I mean, she has now come out and said I was addicted to pills the entire time of girls. One of my big problems with this book is I found that she really skims the surface of the things that are actually tough for her. And she admits it's not brave for me to show my body on TV because it's not a problem for me. I feel what is brave for her is to get into the problems of privilege to talk about a drug addiction. And I understand that at the time, she probably wasn't ready to face it or deal with it. But I think if you're sitting down and honestly looking at yourself, that is something that you would probably recognize or come up with. Like, that's a big honesty. She came out with the pill addiction in 2018, 2019. And as a former pill addict myself, (laughs) whose father died of pills, I mean, this is very much like my area of expertise. I can just tell you that, first of all, I'm someone who's dealt with exactly the thing you're talking about not just pills but about not being ready to talk about it publicly Mm -hmm. and presenting I mean I didn't even go as far as Lena I was like pills what pills you know like I I I erased it from the record I literally just omitted it altogether and I just think it's really unreasonable of people to rush um addicts in their recovery what i'm saying is can we trust the credibility of a book that's supposed to be like an honest reflection on your life and yourself if this glaring truth in her life is not being admitted if you had written the book about cambridge and come out and been like this is what it was like for me at cambridge and not admitted the bill addiction do you think as readers now we'd get to look back and be like oh that was an honest depiction i think we would get to say this was not in any way a true look at her time there and we get to have that criticism totally totally but i also factually I didn't lie I mean nothing I sold publishers was untrue it's not like I didn't go to Cambridge or didn't go to the balls the only way I lied was by omission and I think you get into murky water there saying like yeah you can be skeptical but at a certain point I lived through this exact Mm -hmm. experience in the same way that like if we were talking about say a different author had had an eating disorder and you had had experience maybe omitting or hiding that eating disorder and writing a book and you're like listen I've lived through this this exact thing I can tell you for a fact that like the other things in my life were true this is how I did it. I think maybe you're like overblowing the situation based on my literal experience with it. And that's just how I feel about it. I think we can still trust the rest of the book. Um, And I don't think she owed us 
any information about her addiction that she wasn't ready to share. And also, when you're in it, especially in the early stages of pill addiction, you don't even know. You don't even think to yourself that it's a problem. You know, like you live in denial. And like, how can you write about something that you're actively hiding from yourself? And I don't think it discounts everything else in the book. I've literally, I've literally done that. I've, I've written about my life and just hid the pills. And it didn't make any of the rest of it lies. The reason I'll never write that book is because I agree I could do better and I want to do better. And I feel really compelled to make a real thing. So kind of on this topic and referencing what you said earlier about trying to make this book about heavier things really seem light and fun. She used these illustrations. She used these listicles to kind of lighten up the overall vibe. My problem is that I disagree that there are heavy things that are genuinely addressed in this book. Like Claire was saying that her actual issues are that she has a hard time talking about her privilege. She obviously didn't mention her pill addiction when she talks about body stuff. I don't feel like the majority of the topics that could have been heavy topics in this book, I do think that she did work too hard to keep them light. And it's like, is this supposed to be a beat treat or is this supposed to be like a genuine look at her life? I think that's a really interesting point. And I think something that I've noticed with you as a critic is you really like certainty. You really gravitate towards binaries. You like asking these either or questions like, is it this or is it this? And I want answers and I want to know. And as someone who also hates the uncertainty of life, I really relate to that. But something I work on with my therapist is, you know, like understanding that things are not binaries. And I don't think she should have to choose between beach read or serious things. And this all goes back to what I'm saying about looking at this in context. So she's writing this in 2012. So I also did some research looking into some of the other books that you've had on this podcast. I looked into some of the New York Times bestsellers that you've had on here. Demi Moore's, Lynn Spears, Courtney Robertson, Erica Jane, Travis Barker, Kendra Wilkinson, not New York Times bestsellers. Some of the New York Times bestsellers, which can be any on a list of 20 on any category. So a way that a lot of people cheat the system is that they make it 20 in like, say like comedy. They're not on the overall overall list. That's Drew Barrymore's Wildflower, Wishful Drinking by Carrie Fisher, Rob Lowe's, Gabrielle Unions, Portia de Rossi, Steve O's. And then the only ones that you've reviewed that are number one New York Times bestsellers are Scrappy Little Nobody, Down the Rabbit Hole, Troublemaker, Open Book, and not that kind of girl. And I, within those categories... Down the rabbit hole was a number one bestseller. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. But not on the overall list. Number one bestseller, I think in... Porn, comma, former. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in comedy. It's Scrappy Little Nobody was comedy. Troublemaker was the only other one that I found that was an overall number one New York Times bestseller. I'll tell you that one deserved it. It did. And I say that this one deserved it too. Coming back to the point of context, objectively, statistically, by metrics that are measurable this is one of the two most successful culturally lauded books that you've had I will say though something about buying a book they didn't buy it having read it it's not like buying a song that you streamed you're like I love it so much I'm willing to give it money I do think it's one of the books with the highest cultural interest but I don't know that everybody bought it loved it on Goodreads I think it's like in the low threes but I can double check well I think whatever book I put out no matter how good it is I think it will be in the low threes on Goodread. I think Goodread is a community of haters. Hell yeah. <laughs> of snarky. My people. Midwestern. Snarky. Midwestern, that's her. It's me. It's my people. <laughs> yeah. I just think looking at the context of this book, of when it was published and taking into consideration how successful it was, mm. you're mad that it's too light 
not deep enough. But can you think of any other book that got into issues by a famous person that was this successful? There's no comparison. This book deserves recognition for the fact that of celebrities writing memoirs, Lena Dunham, yes, it is lighter than it could have been, but she owes us nothing about her personal life. Well, let's stop there. Okay. I do believe if you're going to write a memoir, you do owe us something about your personal life. What is a memoir then? This is why you're wrong about okay. the definition of what a memoir is. Okay, I would love to actually hear yeah, yeah, because... Yeah. I majored in TV, so Claire and I often debate whether or not I can even read. So <laughs> <laughs> The memoir, I do feel like it should be self-reflective or at least have facts about your life. Second, I do think Lena Dunham specifically, what she has offered the public and has kind of made her bed with is that she is going to give you the deep deep recesses of her brain, every gross, weird thing. And I would also say that a big problem I have with this book is she has a lot of things in there. And I do wonder, what is she trying to say with this? And was it important to say? And who needs to write a book? Like, did this book need to be written? First of all, who should write a memoir? We'll get into that with Mm -hmm. the history of memoir, because that's a really antiquated attitude. In fact, dating back to the 1500s, Benvenuto Cellini wrote, Vita, and he basically said that no one under 40 should be allowed to write about their life. And this is just like historically what you're saying is it's very outdated, sort of in the same way that the Gutenberg printing press revolutionized the accessibility of written word to readers and writing to writers. The internet really allowed more ordinary people to tell their stories. You can absolutely choose to stay in the past with Benvenuto Cellini but I really think that like the democratization of who's allowed to tell their story is really important for society and really powerful and uh, we really need to dismantle that belief the thing about the water skiing thing I I think and this is where it gets tricky with binaries because you know is she doing a beach read is she is she trying to be heavy and I think that's one chapter where she was just trying to be like sort of Carver-esque and just sort of like you know she is trying to appeal to the to your point I'm not saying that we should like this book because it's a number one New York Times bestseller I bring up those statistics because I think they're interesting in context when you feel like Lena Dunham's not giving you enough because I'm just pointing out can you think of a book by someone as famous with as much success, who's telling you these things about pebbles falling out of vaginas and picking your nose. So Lily Allen, I felt that she was deeply honest about the drugs that she was doing, about her experience having a miscarriage, about her experience having a stalker. About her experience hiring sex workers. I mean, the story she gave about motherhood, and we are big believers that the one thing women can't really be honest about is their experience with motherhood, specifically being like at the end of a year-long tour, I didn't want to go back and be with my kids. That is a very difficult thing for a woman in the public eye to admit without getting just like ripped apart. And I felt that kind of honesty was missing for me. I think what you're saying is so spot on. And I actually agree with everything you're saying. I've never read Lily Allen's book, but damn, her saying that she didn't want to go back to her kids after a year long tour. So powerful. I love it. I love the honesty. The accusation that I want to stay in the olden times. I believe that everybody should have a shot to tell their story. I think it's helpful to hear people's perspectives from the people that aren't normally listened to. And it is important to know, like when you're 24, what are you thinking in your 24 year old mind? Like, I do think that there is a value in that. Totally. I guess I feel that this book to me failed to achieve those things. And I know I'm looking in hindsight as someone who sees how it's all panned out. But I think even aside from the, you know, not talking about drugs, even the things that she could have been honest about in the moment, 
or that would have been interesting stories or interesting things to add in the moment, like the work section. And she talks about going back to her alma mater and having these conversations where some students are like, how does it feel to be a line item in so many people's narratives of privilege and oppression? And she feels blindsided by that question, but does not in this book discuss the question. She just says that they asked the question and then it was 2012. Who was talking about privilege then? These conversations, like if she wrote this book now, I totally fucking agree with you. She should have fucking gotten into it. But where were you in 2012? Were you talking about your privilege? I wasn't. I I wasn't aware of it. I think I was. Really? Um, I think, yeah. In 2012, I was not there yet. I think people were talking about girls because it was so shocking to have all four stars be the products of New York City. Like, like that had been a precipice no one had ever mounted before, I feel. <laughs> I will say just because people weren't necessarily talking about it in like the mainstream conversation doesn't mean that she couldn't have talked about it. I mean, she's literally saying she's been asked several times. This book was written after the conversation had come up over and over and over again, being like, do you deserve to be here because you're the child of artists, whatever. And I'm not saying she doesn't deserve to be there, but I'm saying that like maybe if I wasn't reflecting on it, she must have been because she's literally writing about being asked that question. Yeah, to say who was talking about it back then, somebody to her regularly. Well, that person was you at college. Like that, the person who asked that question would have been someone like you who in 2012 was really ahead of the game and really, Mm -hmm. really doing the work before a lot of the rest of the culture caught the fuck up. And that's great, but like, I just think that there should be a little bit more grace and leeway for 2012. Do I think people should be held to higher standards today? Absolutely. The culture has moved on. You need to keep up. You need to be self-investigating, doing the work. If we are looking at it like outside of the context of just this book, like the year it came out and things that have happened before and since, I, and I haven't read every Lenny letter and I haven't read every essay she's published, but I also don't feel like she's addressed it properly to this day. So if we're looking at it like this was written in 2012, so where has it come to a head ever I don't think it ever has I mean the last thing that she put her name to was HBO's industry where the star is a underprivileged black woman trying to make it in London's cutthroat banking world I mean I disagree I guess I I don't know that putting her Harper's an amazing character she's literally I don't think that that's what we're saying I mean she is loves to talk about herself you can't say that she doesn't reflect and discuss and take her own experiences she hasn't reconciled head-on here's my first person account of I fundamentally disagree I really keep up with what Lena Dunham's what project she's working on what she has in development what she publishes with Vogue um Mm -hmm. her interviews that she gives I think she talks about it all the fucking time I mean I don't think it doesn't come up yes she hasn't put out like a fucking you know communist manifest on like here's my thoughts on privilege she has never unified she does it. put out a lot of unified thoughts that's what I think that's what we're saying I think she talks about it all the time but I think I mean yeah who has put out a unified pr- manifesto on their privilege like you're holding her to a crazy standard that you're not holding other celebrities let's get into the different topics which I think will be really interesting for you guys to know since you guys are celebrity memoir book club yes okay so we start with biography Bios, mm-hmm. graphos, writing, life, or life writing, ancient Greek. This is where the whole genre starts because it was considered almost profane to write about yourself in the first person in the Western world. It's just so self-indulgent, really like ideas that still sort of persist in the culture today. So biography, you write about a famous person and you collect sources from people who knew them and you try to be as unbiased as 
as possible. You try to be a factual historian of this person's life. And this is also where we get the expectations of lessons, which you re- I actually don't know which one of you wanted lessons. Me. I love lessons. I guess I love to you. learn. Just from having met you, I was like, I bet it was I bet it was you. So my two major criticisms of how you approach this book are forgetting the context and not managing your expectations for the genre. And I think it's totally fine as a reader to be like, you know what? I know myself. I like opinions. I like lessons. That's what I want from my memoirs. But when an author fails to meet that expectation, and we'll get into what the genre of memoir is, you can't blame the author for not having that. You can be like, as a reader, I know what I like and this book didn't give it to me. But you can't be like, the author failed the genre because opinions and lessons are not what's given in this genre. It's fine to like that and it's great to know what you like, but it's unreasonable to blame the author when they fail to meet an expectation that only you bring to the book. So that's biography. Then we have autobiography, which I think auto means self. Again, bias life, graph is writing. And this is writing about your own life. But what differentiates this from memoir is an autobiography is written at the end of a life. It's one point in time, it's looking back, and it differentiates itself from the genre of biography because it's meant to be subjective. You're, you're not trying to be unbiased about your own life. You are trying to leave a mark of your experience. But it does carry over the expectation of maybe lessons learned. So that's autobiography. And then really, before we get memoirs, we get apologias, which don't really exist anymore, but have sort of been subsumed into the memoir genre. Apologias were basically an offshoot of what's considered the first modern memoir, Mm -hmm. um, which is St. Augustine's Confessions. It has that great quote that's like, God make me pure, but just not yet, which is like how I feel every single day. I'm like, I'm going to be good, just not now. So he sort of made this book that was like bearing witness to a Christian life and also Christian sins. And that sort of gave birth to this genre of apologias, which is of course, where we get the word apology, where you sort of explain yourself. Like you you talk about what you did wrong, but you like you make a defense for yourself. And from there, we get memoir and essays. And essays come from the French word essayer to try Michel Montaigne. And an essay is where you are confusing a memoir. Essay is opinion. You are trying to opine. You are trying to put forward an opinion and convince your reader. You're Uh trying to do something. Memoirs, French word again, memoir, memory. A memoir is a memory. It's fundamentally just a memory. And your expectation of this genre, you're bringing in all these things from autobiography and biography and essays. And this is a memoir and you know the reason I say that and it's not an essay is because a young woman tells you what she's learned like she is reflecting on memory and this is where I prove my opinion about this and so your expectations of the genre are just not based in fact they're just wrong okay (laughs) right so I mean fair enough so my question is overall 
what do you think this book was successful in? The sentences. I loved the sentences. So you liked the straight up writing of it. I loved the writing. I loved the sentences, the word choices. I loved the details. I loved the worlds that she created with her words. I'm never going to be part of the bi-curious scene at Oberlin. Neither was she, barely. So <laughs> She witnessed it, though, and I felt like she brought me along, and I found that satisfying. See, I guess that's where it is just entirely subjective because I didn't love the sentences. I like felt like they were really trying to be something that amounted to very little to me. And that's just kind of it. And that's where no one can be right or wrong. There's some things where I feel like you guys are just missing the historical facts. And I feel really strongly about that. But like this, it's like, yeah, some you just you don't like the sentences and that's that. And we're both right. You know, I did go through the trouble of marking out yeah. all the arguments. If you please, please, please. please. OK, of course. OK, so one at 1217, yes. after you do your <laughs> intro of the first 10 minutes, a memoir of our own, you can say. Yeah. Oh, yes. So you complain about her not naming the guy 2012. It would be five more years until it became commonplace in Hollywood to name fucking names. And so you can't blame her for for not being brave enough before this watershed cultural movement even existed. Right. So my point is when she doesn't want to get into the specifics, I, I don't blame her for not. But then why even include that chapter? Because it probably really affected her. And saying something probably felt more satisfying as an artist than saying nothing. Here's what's really ironic to me is that you really hate Lena Dunham for like being petty. And I'm petty. And you're petty. I think I don't like it because um, she's so neurotic about it. Like she is a person that if I met her as a real person, I would, I feel, I don't like that. <laughs> I actually think that, hypothetically you guys I might would get like along. Her, yeah. yeah. But um, so at 1259. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. We need to, we need to, yeah, we need to speed this along so I can get to all my points. We come to the water skiing chapter, which you didn't like. And what I wrote down is that I really think, again, that that chapter is not about plot. That chapter is about voice, which is really something that we prefer in like New York intellectual literary circles, as opposed to like what we prefer from a book that's like a summer beach read. And I think she does a good job with voice in that chapter. Yeah, there isn't a lot of plot. I think it sort of hangs in the air in an unsettling way, the way that like, you know, a slant ending of a poem does. And to prove my point that we often do like voice over plot, you know, Winston Churchill wrote, I'm going to say six or eight memoirs about World War II. No one ever fucking reads them because they're dry as shit. He is credited with saving the fucking Western world from Nazis. Talk about fucking plot. But his voice is bad. And I, I think that's a really great example. See, I would yeah. say he struggles with tempo as well. I don't know that we need six or eight books on one little war. One war. Who was even <laughs> in it? Even Lena covers 29 years. <laughs> Here's the thing that I want to jump to, which like might be jumping the gun. Mm -hmm. I think in this podcast we do read for plot and so I think that this might have just been overall a really bad pick for us yeah yeah, yeah totally and I actually yes I think that this is a fair criticism of like the context of what it is being read in because we we do read for like celebrity sauce and and or interesting opinions or just like something to grab onto and like really discuss or critique or whatever and so I think reading for the sake of beautiful sentences is like not what we are looking for and totally. like not, the only not thing an I'm interesting thing to talk about on a podcast really. Do you think that, you know, for memoir to really just be like a coverage of memory? I didn't know that. And I also, I, I just don't think that when we open these books, we're like looking for 
something to be well written. I mean, well, we do care if it's like horribly written. Rob Lowe, go fuck yourself. The self-awareness that you just exhibited and like, listen, like we're not reading for plot. I love that you said that because I think it's so important to look at like what you are trying to do. Of course, you don't fucking read for sentences. Your episodes and your TikToks that get the most traffic are when you find a historical fact about a celebrity that has been overlooked and then you expose it. That's what does well for you. So you can appreciate what you're doing, right? In your work. Can you not appreciate the fact that maybe it's not a binary? There are lots of things at play here. She's trying to be a beach read. She's trying to impress her New York intellectual friends. But she's also trying to trap in controversy like in the same way that you guys look for plot I think something that you really a trap that you fell into that she laid for you and you walked right into it's all dirt and there's one pile of leaves and you're like I'm sure there's not a hole there just walk straight into this like jungle tiger trap she wants to be talked about and Again, this is something that I feel like I'm an expert on the whole pill addiction where it's like I really think you just need to like take my word for it because like I've been there and I've been there with trying to sort of play the internet and the culture like a church organ. And like, yes, I want to make good sentences. I want to make something that's digestible. I want to make something that's smart. But I also want to make something that like gets talked about that runs its mm-hmm. own publicity for me. You totally. Know? I mean, God bless. She did that. That is something she successfully yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. And so I think you need to be careful about zooming out from your own outrage and looking at the ways that she's successfully manipulating you. So 1444, you talk about how girls is not realistic. And this is context, 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 context. Let's think about the evolution of uh, New York City apartments. We have friends. Huge fucking apartment. Then we have Carrie Bradshaw's apartment, a little bit smaller, still unrealistic. Then we have girls living in Brooklyn. Like, yeah, it wasn't the most realistic thing ever. But I do think that like if you plot them all on a graph of realism, we're going, they're living in Brooklyn. They're not in the West Village anymore. They're, they're. The attempt that friends had to be like, this is somebody else's apartment and we just got it lucky was more realistic than the idea that someone could go to the Iowa Riders Rock shop and then come back and have that giant Greenpoint apartment still be there. I straight up don't think I've ever really thought about the girls' apartments until you mentioned the Marnie one because it is crazy for her to have quit her job, to have no backup money, her mom sleeping on her couch. She has no family money and she has this nice apartment. Until you said that on the episode, my issue with girls was so beyond the aesthetic of it. It was the behaviors. And I do think it was deeply personal because my issue was in that story that I was a girl in my early 20s and I heard an older man be like, wow, a perfect glimpse into what it's like to be a girl in your early 20s. And I personally took offense because I thought that behaviorally they were insufferable and it made me upset that the voice of girls in their early 20s was making us look insufferable because I do think as women – people find us insufferable. (laughs) And so to be like, here's a hot take. Girls are annoying. I was like, I don't think we needed people to think that more. (laughs) I saw it totally differently. I mean, I think that just having taken a huge interest in how women are portrayed in literature, both how they portray themselves, how they're allowed to portray themselves, and how they're written by others, I thought it was really groundbreaking to see such complicated women on screen. I thought that it was truly revolutionary to have such fucked up, flawed, unlikable 
anti-heroes. They were unlikable. They were unlikable. (laughs) But my God, just intuitively, in the same way that we see like a sexual assault case, we are so conditioned to love men that our first thought is not what will the victim's life be like? We're like, oh, the poor guy. Will this ruin his life? What about his potential? And like, I think with just characters on TV, you know, fucking Breaking Bad, Walter White, what's his name? Like, he's so awful. Like, he's literally making meth, but he's lovable. And like, what? These women are just like, a little toxic to each other breaking no laws and we can't fucking stand them like I think that's something culturally we need to examine in ourselves that's true I didn't see Breaking Bad but I've heard people like it yeah and I think it's true that it's like can we unlike women but I the idea that any and all exposure is good I do think there is like a second level question to be asked. And this is actually something we asked on our Patreon that we felt was not appropriate for the main because it's a little bit the story she has in here about her sexual assault are all stories right now, specifically at that time, a story that'll help. And I understand it is her story is her right. But I do think that she has to be aware of the fact that she is in some ways like breaking this ground for women is every sex assault story, a story that'll help the general cause. I think as an artist, especially as someone who makes art about their own life, God, there is nothing I can think of that's sadder or more stifling than approaching what inspires me as will it help the cause. Jesus fucking Christ. I just want to make art about what's important to me. And I think that's what artists, especially artists who like make stuff about their own life should. I think it's absolutely an unreasonable burden to be like do not share this about this meaningful thing that's weighing on your chest if it's not helpful to the cause. I actually will say that I, I, I don't necessarily mean this about you but I do think it's like a valid question about that do you feel like that comes from a place of privilege because I don't think that everyone has that luxury to say like I just want to say what is important to me and like I don't care how it affects the people that I represent because I mean Lena Dunham's words do represent a good amount of people who don't have that voice to share to a fault of our society we do use people's words to reflect essentially the entire group they represent all the time So do you think it is a privilege to be able to say, I just want to make what's important for me, whether or not, like, no matter how it affects the cause? Well, absolutely. Throughout history, I mean, if you look back at the first female memoir, they were the top, tiniest little, like, 0.00001% of society. They were the high priestesses. They were the queens. And then it sort of expands to the courtiers. And then the upper middle class. And, you know, now we have... Girls who were born in a blockbuster parking lot trying to hack it as artists. I agree that throughout history, it has been the people with financial stability who have been most able to make any type of art, be it about themselves or be it fucking, you know, I don't know, black paintings where it's just mm. black. Any any type of art. It's really like a function of privilege and it's always been that way. And even though it's vastly expanded since, you know, the days of where only queens could write. We have still have so much farther to go. So you're completely correct. But I I do think it's a cultural failing to think that anyone who's making art about themselves is speaking for a population. And like, yeah, you're right. But it's like, don't hate the player. Hate the game. I hate the game. But I have to say, like, personally, as you were saying, like, I can't think of anything more of a burden. I have written jokes that I'm like, are technically a clever wordplay, a clever, like, noticing of inconsistencies amongst policy or whatever. And I have sat back and gone, 
this does not actually speak to my ultimate moral stance. It doesn't speak to the ultimate viewpoint that I think I have generally as a human. And so I'm going to leave it out. I know that it is a burden, but I do think it is one that's worth asking. I, I think so too. And you know, I should hedge by saying that like, I'm not saying like people should just be able to like say whatever they want, irregardless of privilege and not take it into consideration. I totally think that it should be in the back of their mind, but specifically within the context of the question, does sharing her sexual assault, maybe she shouldn't have shared it because it doesn't help mm-hmm. the cause. In that particular case, I really say fuck the cause. I really think get get it off your chest. Trauma that heavy deserves to be shared in whatever way you can do it as ethically as possible. And if you fail, I still think it's better that you tried in the first place. But to your point mm-hmm. of like wanting, it seems like in the same way, I think that Ashley, just like part of who she is as a person is like wanting certainty. I think something about you that I've noticed is that like you, you were way ahead of us in 2012 examining your own privilege. You really care about these social causes. And I think that's like probably a really great asset to you as an artist in the same way that like Lena Dunham and I are really interested in our own experiences and I think part of like you know being a creative is like really leaning into your strengths and following that inner voice and I think that seems like a lovely thing about you but I don't think everyone should be held to that standard 1637 you talked about deflective honesty I think it's really smart I think it absolutely exists I think that It's like not as toxic a behavioral trait as you make it out to be. I think I'm not like public for my music, you know, like I'm public for living my life. And I think it's very extremely something I've really worked on in therapy is like, you know, talking about like, what do I keep private? How do I, you know, assert the fact that like no one pays to watch my Instagram stories, you know, no one pays to be involved in the life of Caroline Calloway. This is an entertainment that I put out for free while the costs to me are very real food, rent, therapy. And in return, people buy my overpriced paintings. That's sort of the gist. But um, I think it's really healthy to hold things back. Sometimes. I do too. I don't put my boyfriend on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you should. And I don't think Lena Dunham should have in the Jack Antonoff chapter. At 1811, I wrote something pretty scathing, which is a lot of the memoirs you've reviewed more positively, like Green Lights, didn't even come close to reaching number one New York Times bestseller. So why can't you be smart enough to step outside your own immediate feelings of indignation and realize that this book, much like girls, much like anything Lena has and likely will ever continue to do, is intended to enrage? I was I was also enraged in that moment. I would not say anything like that to your face. I actually want to say something in not defense of Lena, but in defense of the podcast, which, as you said, the context that we came at this book with is wrong. The context that we do this podcast with is that we are comedians just literally spouting our own opinions. We're not actively reviewing memoirs from like an impartial memoir critic authority. We're like doing it from a comedy here are our opinions standpoint and so you know what that's a that's a failing on my part to see context and I will concede in to defense that. of us we were not nice about green lights we thought it was like oh, when really we, we thought it was the dumbest thing we'd ever read we were deeply inspired by everything he said and we hated every word of it <laughs> <laughs> but however at that point in my life personally she needed to hear every word he had to say <laughs> Do you know what Green Lights was? Green Lights was a horoscope. Yes. Where it was. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, even though Green Lights was one of the dumbest things I've ever read in my life, it was meant to inspire and motivate. And I did come away being like inspired and motivated. That's but good. when you talk about Lena's book being written Lena, to an. Lena. Lena. I was going to correct you like, I don't know, a week and a half. Lena. Okay, Lena. 
the idea that she wrote a book that was meant to enrage and create this sort of hot-headed dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it successfully did that. So, like, congrats to her. She successfully got me all hot and bothered. Yes. But- you know what? That's such a valid opinion. But here's what I want to differentiate. You need to be aware enough to be able to say, I don't want to read a book that enrages instead of just being enraged at the book. Those are two different experiences. And on the podcast, yes, you guys were comedians trying to be funny, but I really I think... I feel like we are funny, so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. You guys are really, really funny. I, no, no, I'm, no, I'm no. so sorry. I really no, didn't no, no. mean it like that. I know, I know. Truly, truly, no, she's truly from the bottom of my heart. But um, I'm just getting one of my funny little lines in. Yeah, no. Just being funny. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was terrifying, but funny. But um, on the last episode... I think it was really clear that you guys were just enraged Mm -hmm. and not talking about how, you know what? I don't like books that make me enraged. This book was successful at stirring up controversy and hot-headed feelings and not for me. You guys were more like, this was controversial and I'm hot-headed about this. And I I think, so I don't even know that it was controversial. I felt almost bored. I I feel like it was almost like a lack. Here's what I want to say that I feel like encapsulates what you're saying. I feel like it's like a little bit of a olive branch. Mm Mm-hmm. I think part of the problem with Lena, so someone like Katina Fey, yeah, yeah. and she had 30 Rock, and of course that is, Liz Lemon is a semi-autobiographical character, and part of the irony of Liz Lemon, Unlucky in Love, the producer of a TV show can barely get by, is it's this like version of Tina Fey that doesn't give her credit for any of her successes. So it's like, this is what I'm like, but of course in real life, she has like one of the most successful comedies of all time, she has a husband, she has two children, she has a deeply successful life, but here's like the worst, most self-deprecating version of her. I will say, I think when you have that persona out there for long enough, it becomes hard to separate them. And I'm sure you can talk to what it is to have the real Caroline, the Instagram Caroline. I always talk about like real housewife effect where when you have a caricature version of yourself that you're constantly putting out there and you're getting rewarded for it, it almost becomes harder to separate the two. Like I know a lot of comics I say on, on Twitter who like get sloppier and messier, I think, because that's part of their persona. And then they kind of have to back it up in real life. And you almost see them cycle out of control where it's like they lose control of the persona. I've never even thought about comparing Lena and Tina Tina like that before because I do think it's different in the way that like Lena's is supposed to be slice of life, whereas Tina's is for the humor. They're both versions themselves, but Tina's has always been like, this is the funniest version of myself for the punchline, whereas Lena's has always been like, this is the most controversial part of myself for the controversy yeah for me I thought she was trying to be the most relatable version and that she's being the most controversial version and that's why I feel so angry is because I thought she was supposed to be relatable yeah (laughs) she's not she's not I think that failing of the expectation to be relatable is definitely like a part of the engine that fuels the controversy like if you had to like break it down like a mechanic that would definitely be like that's me walking into the pile of leaves again (laughs) okay here's what so the reason I brought her up in the first place and to get back to specifically the memoir is a big part of Lena as we know her as a non-friend. I'm not her friend. I'm not her colleague. No one here is her friend. Nobody here knows her. (laughs) One of the things is that she is this kind of like larger than life figure that encapsulates or incorporates Hannah Horvath. It's Lena Dunham. It's the daughter of famous artists. It's the body positive woman. It's the Instagram. It's the essayist. It's all of these things. And I think for me, part of the problem was that it was hard to separate Hannah Horvath from Lena. And I think reading this book, what I needed her to succeed in, and I know she didn't owe me anything, but I'm just saying as a reader, what I was looking for was a more 
honest, interesting look at Lena. And I felt what she gave was still more of a caricature. And it's interesting you say this. I actually, when I saw you had all those notes on Instagram, I got like a little panicked and I was like, I better <laughs> reread real quick. And then I got three pages in and was like, I'll see what I can come up with. <laughs> You're like, I'm good on the fly. <laughs> but I do want to say, I found this sentence that I felt was so interesting and it's, it made me kind of like warm to her. But in the introduction, she has this line. I hate the curve of my stomach, the way my parents talk to me in a slightly higher register. And then she goes, I cover up this hatred with a kind of aggressive self-acceptance. And then she goes into things like I dye fluorescent shade of yellow. I dress in neon spandex that hug in all the wrong places. And I felt that line of I hate myself and I'm covering it up by being aggressively self-accept, the aggressive self-acceptance. And of course, with varying degrees of success for her own experience, I felt that felt honest. And I felt the line about the divas where she said the whole point of the the delusional downtown divas is our children of the art world who want the success and the glory, but don't know if they're worth it. That to me felt like an interesting story. Yeah. I felt that there was these moments of like looking into what I wanted from her and what I wanted from Lena, not Hannah. And I felt the whole body section where she claimed she never got on a scale until she was 23. That felt like something that she wanted a version of herself, the public persona of Lena Dunham to be just this woman who never even thought about her body. She talks about in college, her and her group of friends had this like overeaters anonymous where like they would push each other to eat whatever. And they never thought about their bodies. And when she finds out she gained 20 pounds, she's like, it must be a thyroid problem. I don't know that I believe that. I believe that she is a woman who hated parts of herself and so pretended she didn't. But what I want to get to is past the pretend and into what is it like to hate yourself and then have this public persona of pretend. And I don't think that I got that from this book and I don't think I got enough Lena. I thought I got a lot of, not Hannah, but another version of here is somebody I want to be and it's different than you would think because it's, I feel like you gave us what society says they want a woman to be. Beautiful, rich, in Cambridge, having the time of her life. What Lena did was like, I'm going to find this other character that, and give you her perspective. But I never felt that it was really Lena. And that was my problem with the memoir because I don't know that they were her memories, truly. I totally disagree. And I think what what you're saying plays into both context and misguided expectations. We talked about how when you examine this, you're like, no, I, I do think people should be able to write about their lives at all ages. It shouldn't just be like a limited few looking back. But you're expecting a level of self-awareness that you would get from someone, you know, as Benvenuto Cellini said in 1500, 40 or above, or you can't talk about your life. You're expecting her to like be able to look at the stuff that's happened, what, two, three years ago at this point with the, with the self-awareness of someone much older. And it's just an unrealistic expectation. And in terms of context of blurring the Hannah character and the Lena character, this was 2012. She got girls in 2010. Like, let's look at the historical facts. Girls in 2010 comes out 2011. Season one, huge success. New Yorker pieces, New York Times. Everyone's talking. She gets this book deal, 2012. She is writing this at peak Hannah Horvath. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, there probably was a lot of Hannah in this because this was not her top priority. Like, Girls was her top priority. She's directing. She's just been renewed for season two. She's focusing on this. It's Girls is the reason she has this book deal. She has so many reasons why she would want to 
I don't know, just be in a Hannah mindset. And that's like, I, I'm, I think that that's a great excuse, but I don't know that that then means it's good to me. No, 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 totally. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying like we should put a gun to her head and like kick her out with the dogs because she was writing in the style of the thing that had made her most successful. I mean, real housewife syndrome. She was writing as the character that seemed to be getting the most press and interaction in the public. Totally. But to me, that's not what's interesting about memoirs. That's not what, like what's interesting to me is like, brutal honesty that's why I I like love stand-up I feel like the beautiful thing about stand-up is the minute someone's dishonest on stage everyone can tell and you watch the like there's just so much people inherently know when someone gets on a stage and when someone gets up there and tries to be something they're not we can sense it in a minute and um I I think that a good stand-up can control that expectation and I guess as a writer I feel she did not control my expectation I feel she did not be honest and I just think that those are the things I want from a memoir is honesty and I think that if you're not someone who's capable of doing great self-reflection then I'm actually not that interested in your book. And if it wasn't for this podcast, I wouldn't have read it. Because I don't... A Lily Allen, I felt, was brutally honest. Gabrielle Union, I thought her book was really interesting and She's honest. She's in her 40s and I think, too, though. I think her book is a couple years old, though. I think what you've brought, like, contextually, I think is really interesting and does explain a lot of our issues. But I, I don't find that they've, like, erased it. At 35.06, you guys talk about mm-hmm. writing books too young. And, you know, Mary Shelley, who wrote mm-hmm. Frankenstein, her first success came at 19. Percy Shelley, her husband, got kicked out of Oxford at 18 for publishing something. Rimbaud, the French poet, 15, his first big success. Alexander Pope, 21. Joyce Maynard, uh, 17, when she was published in New York Times Magazine. Brett Easton Ellis, 21, when he published Less Than Zero. And the movie rights were even purchased before the book came out. And you said specifically, I think, that people shouldn't, like, write in college or write about college. And first of all, I think people definitely should write about college. We have God and Man at Yale uh, by Buckley about Yale. Rideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh about Oxford. Catcher in the Rye, Salinger, boarding school. Like, I I think there's a lot to be – there's fertile – literary ground to be tilled in terms of like writing about college but I agree those were written by older men so they're not great examples the better examples are the younger people who found success and I'm truly naming like the great greats from literature so I don't think that we should compare every 21 year old writer to these people but like I and this comes back to how we were talking about like some things I think you just got historically wrong and some things I think we just have to agree to disagree because it's just subjective for me the context really lowers my subjective opinions I'm really not expecting Lena Dunham to come into this with like the insight of you know someone in their 80s looking back she's going through it in real time and she's also the first of her kind like think about young girls who have famous memoirs I can think of two. And Frank. Frank, <laughs> and Frank literally lived through the Holocaust, did not live to tell the tale. Did she live through it? No. Well, no, she, that's the whole point. I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, she died. Yeah, yeah. But she experienced. Malala had a really uh, popular best-selling mm-hmm. memoir. Also, just like. Bit too ta- young, if you ask me. <laughs> Honestly, like, I wouldn't be surprised if you actually felt that way. Um, um, what about Miley Cyrus? She had. Miles to go. At- Miles to go at 16, she wrote. <laughs> she wrote the Charlie D'Amelio book yeah I'm actually like talking about books that were like widely widely read like I've never heard about these other two books but like Anne Frank's diary and Malala's book you know the Nobel Peace Prize winner I feel like sure. these are famous books okay yeah they just went through 
a lot. And I, I just think it's like really revolutionary to have a memoir where it's not that much happens. And the same way I think like her flawed female character on girls, like she's breaking new ground and I fucking appreciate it. And I don't think she does it perfectly. I think it's flawed, but I think like overall what she gives to the culture is like, I guess I, worth I do want to say, I do think my expectations are high and mm-hmm. I do think that they are not just genderedly high. Like I just, just in the middle of Bo Burnham's special gave up because I thought it was so boring and <gasps> tedious. What? So I will say, I guess I do expect a lot from a lot of people and it's to keep me deeply interested every minute. I do think that it is just like a fundamental difference in what we like. I think it's interesting and an interesting choice to just like write about the day to day and include nothing. But my problem with it is our expectations or my expectations. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do think that there are stories that I want from Lena Dunham. Like I know who she is. I've read about her, seen her, watched her for years. I think that there are things that I want to hear from her. I think there are stories that she does have to tell. And so the fact that she didn't tell those stories in this memoir is what I really didn't like. How many of those stories happened after 2012 though? A lot of the things historically, like I agree there are lots of things I want to know about Lena Dunham. I don't think any of my top five happened pre-2012. So so to want them to be in this book is crazy. I guess for me something, an example would be she has the story about finding out she has endometriosis and what that would mean about her fertility. And I I am a big fertility um, conspiracy theorist about myself is that I have like this real fear that I'm going to be infertile. It's just I think like, I'm infertile too. It's just like a feeling I have. Like why had, haven't I had an abortion? Why? That's my feeling. I've been having sex now for 14 years and I am disorganized. I, <laughs> I take, I used to do a joke. Like I take those pills like Tic Tacs, like a handful whenever I remember I have them. And like the fact that I have not been pregnant yet, I'm like, okay, this is a Oh problem. no, I'm definitely sterile. <laughs> and so when I came across that essay and it ends sort of just like with a dream she has about forgetting to feed her cats, I just felt like, God, I would have loved to. Eat. She did write about endometriosis. She got, she wrote for Vogue. But that's not, this print, isn't Vogue. But her, it hadn't happened yet. She yes. hadn't got her uterus removed no, no, yet. No, but I don't need the uterus removed. I'm saying... I obviously have no factual knowledge from a doctor about whether or not I can have children. That doesn't mean it's not something I think about regularly. I would have loved that experience of like when you are confronted with that sudden fear because she didn't know it yet. It was just a possibility. Exactly. But for me, it's also a possibility, but it's like a, it looms large in my life. Like that's what we're saying is it is like majority the expectation of what I think she could have written about that isn't in here. And that's why I don't. The endometriosis thing is so crazy to me because it's just a factual thing. She literally did not know in this book whether this is another thing where you're like, I have a strong opinion mm-hmm. about this thing that's based in non-fact. And you have your suspicions that when her doctor told her you m- maybe mm-hmm. you won't be able to have kids, you have your suspicions that Lena should have been like, I am infertile. No, 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 I should, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. About no, that's not experience. what I'm saying at all. I'm I'm saying she's no different than me and that I similarly have this thing of what if I am infertile and having to be confronted with like she has one more step towards that possibility. That's where I think we differ on this book is that like I think our criticisms come from the potential that we saw within this book to write. We loved her too much. Yeah. We saw a lot of potential and we felt not mad, just disappointed, (laughs) but mad also. (laughs) What you were saying about us, how you love stand up, how you love honesty. I would say I love being I only want to be a memoirist for the same reason I wouldn't have put it as honesty because I think as a memoirist you really have to walk a fine line between sharing yourself and keeping something for yourself that the public can't dissect just to stay sane I usually put it as like a, a factor of loneliness like I love reading stuff that makes me feel less alone and it's so valid of so valid of you guys to want to find that in what you read but like 
I don't know. I just, I just hope, I just hold in my mind the idea that like a lot of experiences exist and that they don't all need to be mine. You know, like Lena Dunham's thing. I, I also worry about being sterile, but like, I also just have a lot of empathy that like, I worry about being infertile, but like, I don't endometriosis, never experienced it. But from what I know of the disease, excruciating chronic pain. And like, if you have excruciating chronic pain, I don't know. It's probably front of mind. I don't know because the chapter itself is actually like it, that part is couched in a lot of I've always wanted to be a mom. She has that line about she wanted to be a mom so badly she breastfed her toys growing up. And I, I was just like, of course, something a little bit weirder than everybody else did. <laughs> That's what you did. <laughs> and so I guess I do feel like it is not unreasonable or even coming from anything outside of the book itself. It's not a personal expectation. It was the expectation that she set up in her own chapter. I, about I don't get that from what that does chapter. it mean from my motherhood? OK, y'all are going to hate my book. I was wondering where that book was. Yeah, you and everyone else. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty soon. I think that you guys will hate it. I think you'll find it really like not, not enough plot. There are no lessons in it. No lessons. I feel like I have no lessons to offer people. If it's honest, I, I won't hate it. And I feel like if it's honest to a point where it's like, like you know, in therapy, when your therapist is all right, all right, like I'm gonna tell you what's really happening here. Yeah. Like that kind of honesty of like, there's that surface level. Here's what I was doing, and here's what I thought I was thinking. But then the other thing, like really what you wanted and what was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And I don't again, if you're saying off the bat, I have no lessons to offer. I've, that's not what I'm trying to do. Then I also feel like then that's not what I'll expect. But I do think that Lena Dunham has framed herself as this like voice of a generation person. And so I think that's the way that I came to this book is expecting more relatability, more voice of a generation shit that I and I don't feel like I related to almost a single word. So that is like on me, probably. Let me tell you the four things to expect from scammer. Sure. Okay. One, I want to create controversy by just having a lavish amount of wealth that will agitate people and do my press for me for free because people will just be talking about it on Twitter. Of course. I actually should have listed that as number four, but just seeing how you reacted to Lena Dunham's book and how caught up you got in the rage, I actually bumped that one to number one. Number two, beautiful sentences. I love a beautiful (laughs) sentence that takes you, that mixes highbrow, lowbrow, aristocrats, iPhones, things you wouldn't expect to see in the same sentence like you know pop culture words like kardashian and beautiful adjectives like maudlin i love to see them fuse together that's number two number three um i want to take you into like beautiful worlds this is separate from number one which is creating controversy by displaying wealth i really want to something i'm really struggling with uh as i like finish the final edits on the book is it's like how do i retain what I do best which in the same way that like Tina Fey does jokes and Lena Dunham does her like I'm a weirdo third I want to take you into beautiful worlds it's honestly doing fairy tale stuff I agree it shouldn't be my whole thing I have more to my life and it is dishonest to only show that but I'm also so fucking good at it and I love it so much and it makes me so happy to write about those worlds I don't think West Village yeah. is a beautiful world I mean the thing Cambridge is, is a beautiful world but like both of them like you can be a hot mess in a beautiful place yeah and the fourth yeah. thing I want to do is make my readers feel less alone I want to I want to hold some things back that I'm not ready to talk about mm-hmm. publicly. The The litmus test that I always do now is that like 
would I feel comfortable with people just making fun of me for this memory or, or, or skewing it the wrong way? Would I feel absolutely tender and raw about it? Or would I be like, you know what? I've come to terms with that memory. I know what happened. Like, I don't fucking give a shit. Say what you want. And until I get to that place, Mm -hmm. I really can't release it it until the public. I do think that you really brought a lot of really interesting contacts and really good points. I do think you give her a lot. You're like, listen, you can't expect to, to be good or learned or interesting or have any self-respection how is she supposed to be honest she's 29 how is she supposed to have a separate character she I had didn't a TV say show. any of those <laughs> things <laughs> I do think that the thing that we do just fundamentally disagree on is whether or not what, it was good like what is what makes it good because that's yeah, such yeah, a subjective yeah. thing and like you found it was and I personally found it wasn't I still stand by almost everything that we said in the first episode actually oh, oh I have one more point I want to oh, make yeah, about us. you mm-hmm. uh, your thing how she thinks that being liked by men is the best thing in the world. You even made a TikTok about this. Fact remains that talking about someone who isn't attracted to men, identifying them as how men view them. And like that that is the final proof in the pudding of their value. Yeah, yeah. I just, this is one more, one more context thing that when I was like, in 2012, were you examining your privilege? I was not. In 2012, I was sophomore at NYU thinking Natalie was my best friend in the world, taking my first Adderall from her, not (laughs) knowing the five-year addiction this would unspool. Every time I went out to a party, I just wanted someone to flirt with me and think I was attractive. And it was just... Yeah, but can I say, Lena Dunham... Lena. At the time of writing this was how old, though? I think she was 27, right? So I do think at 27 in a hit TV show, there should be something else. I think at 27 in... 2021 if you're still thinking that male validation in this day and age is the end all with all the tiktoks all the articles all the resources out there but again she was 27 in 2012 where were you in 2012 i was looking for male validation I guess like the back and forth of this is groundbreaking because she wrote about nothing but it's not thoughtfully groundbreaking it's not she is not um, groundbreaking in the sense that she had some sort of confidence or anything she is not a personality that i find I need to read about the medium itself might have been something hot, new and fresh, but I don't know that the content it delivered for me was anything that helped. Yeah. Me. And that's, that is something that I have no qualms with is if you subjectively just like dislike the art she's making, that is like, that is not something that can be proven with fact. That is like that, that opinion is correct in my view. I'm just saying that about um, the male validation thing, like it's okay to like, not like her, Art, but I just I just think that you need to remember it was 2012 and we just weren't there culturally and and here's the thing I all of us like this before I said something like you know like hate the game not the player um this is a good example of this like misogyny and patriarchy it is the water that we swim in and it's it's in the it's the air that we breathe it's everywhere and like yes lena dunham is challenging the form she's making unlikable female characters she's you know pushing the envelope being innovative but she's fucking human like she lives in this i people sometimes come for me for like ways that i have internalized misogyny Mm -hmm. and sometimes they're not wrong like i same with us yeah yeah and and they're they're not wrong but i i just Sometimes it really exasperates me because I want to be like, intellectually, I agree with you, person. And now that you've pointed it out, I see that you're correct. But like, 
I live in the same world you do. Like I, I don't get to like be outside of the patriarchy. I exist within it. I've internalized all the same shit. And I'm sure that if you pointed out hypothetically, if you pointed this out to Lena and was like, don't you think that this particular sentence, like think about it this way, you're just saying male validation is the end all be all. She'd be like, you're totally right. Like she's, especially in 2021 and like you're right that it's wrong but you're hating the player and not the game like we all exist in this toxic culture I agree I do think that as someone with an important voice and and again this is once again me projecting expectations that could not possibly be met because they exist in my own head we've come so far we've come so far I do think they could be met I okay whatever I'm saying we've come so far far. what I'll say is that I do think that when you have the opportunity this is the conversation we had before is what is the responsibility of someone who has a voice to reflect better and speak for more people it is totally fair that she wasn't thinking outside of the patriarchy or she wasn't thinking outside of herself in this moment but I also think that for someone to have this opportunity to examine further and to you know extend the conversation and to create a dialogue to just say that it's okay that she just kind of folds within it I want people who have the opportunity to write New York number one times bestsellers to be pushing themselves beyond those limits and to be thinking further and to be thinking harder and to I hate to say do better but I just wish she did I like to agree and I want to talk about your hate the game not the player to have a number one New York Times bestseller she was not some upstart viral she was not Zola who's Zola the movie she was not a Twitter thread where the genius of which just shone through and then this democratically elected world came as somebody she was somebody who came up through a deeply privileged world in the game having every advantage and I'm sorry, I know she had maybe the best-selling book out of any of the we've read, but she's also probably had the strongest PR team, and she's she was... She's the most disliked author of anyone you've read. Strongest PR team? Are you kidding me? She, she has the weakest PR who, team. Who published this book? Jesus fucking Christ. Who published this book? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Random House? Li- okay, literally, if you think a celebrity's PR team is connected to their publishing house, from the inside looking out, publishers do nothing for PR like yes they'll put the most amount of resources into like their celebrity memoirs for sure but like the most resources they have is like it it's one person I guess I just so what I'm trying to get down to essentially is I feel like you're trying to argue both sides which is one it's important and it's great that people are women in their 20s feel comfortable writing this memoir about everyday non the everyday person people who previously have been sort of locked out but I do feel that since she specifically was given that opportunity with a huge amount of privilege I do actually expect more from her I do expect an attempt to dig further because it this isn't like an interesting story about somebody who came up from a working class experience and just like every day after their long day of work sat down and wrote their perspective I feel like this is somebody who came from a deep place of privilege and it was part of the trade-off is you do need to put a few minutes in and try harder I just want to say yeah hit us to to that yes Mm -hmm. of course final thoughts (laughs) final thoughts you know you've read a lot of celebrity memoirs Mm -hmm. a lot of whom came from even if they didn't come from privilege which many of them did they definitely all published their books 
at a place where they were getting the book deal because they had made it, which Mm -hmm. is, of course. So like Lena Dunham in that sense is like starting off at the same, with the same head start in terms of like book sales. Mm -hmm. But her Mm -hmm. book did so much better than everyone else you've reviewed on this podcast. And part of that's through controversy. Part of it's through people hating it. And part of it is because by definition, the type of people who are watching girls and know Lena are the type of people who are buying books. Exactly, exactly. But also I I don't think that we should take away credit from Lena Mm -hmm. for creating a TV show, writing, directing, starring in a TV show that appealed to intellectuals. Like you can't be like, oh, it's Lena doesn't deserve credit for like writing a book that appealed to like because people who watch her TV show would buy it. It's like, well, she fucking created that TV show. Yeah. Like she made a smart thing for smart people. And smart people read books. <laughs> Don't hate the player. Hate the game. I agree. I do think we can expect more out of the player. And I do think that she knows how to play the game and did it successfully to your point. Like she definitely did whatever this book was she played us. trying to <laughs> totally. do. She did it successfully. I mean, or whatever she was trying to like accomplish in terms of sales, in terms of conversation. She definitely did. I don't think that she met our expectations. She did not. But she did not. I agree. And I, I still don't think I like the book. And I, agree. I don't know why I said think. I still know I don't like the book. I agree. But I, agree. I do think that this was a very fascinating chat. I learned things. And that's hard to do because I, you know, hate thinking outside of my stupid box. Well, I felt very intellectually stimulated the whole time. Um, thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you so much okay, for coming this on. This is a stupid question. But what? Caroline, where can people find you? <laughs> Honestly, you know, I'm very mysterious. I'm very hard to find Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. So before we sign off for the week, I want to leave you with one and a half thoughts. The half thought is, if you liked us, subscribe to our Patreon. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Buy a t-shirt if you must. Our second thing is, and this may be unfair because she's no longer in the room, but this is our <laughs> podcast. So we get to do whatever we want to do. She came knowing our arguments, ready to fight. I feel like now that I've had 24 hours to marinate and what Caroline said, I have a couple closing thoughts on my end. Okay. Is that fair? I, f- fair is fair in love and games. <laughs> okay, here's what I want to say about historical context and the way that she said objectively we are wrong about historical context. It's actually not objective to consider all art through their historical context. That is like a preference that goes in and out of vogue in the literary criticism world. You can or you cannot. There's also the idea that a work of art should stand on its own and that there is timeless art. There's books I've read from 2000 BC that relate to me today. I think if something truly gets to the heart of what it is to be human, like the universal human experience, it can stand the test of time. And so I would say my argument about the Lena book is that she was so obsessed with being weird and freaky that she wasn't emotionally honest in a way that can stand the test of time. So the idea that we're objectively wrong about the facts is crazy because that itself is a subjective preference of how to look at a book. And I think a second point, Ashley. 2012 is not that long ago. She wasn't up against any sort of genuine clock. Do you know what I mean? She was still a young person writing a book that she had a book opportunity. A book deal was presented to her. I don't think that that deal would have gone away if she had said, I need a couple more years to really solidify my thoughts. I think that if she had these types of thoughts that were deeply unformed and were supposed to view them from the perspective of someone who's still working them out in her own mind and who isn't truly ready to reflect, those could have been blog posts. Well, even I think Caroline's main 
argument was that for the time, they were not problematic thoughts. But I guess I just think that if your thoughts in 2012 haven't aged and kept up with a decade, then that is just a flash in the pan book that doesn't deserve to be held in high regard. I don't feel like they were finished thoughts. Like, and I do think that if she wasn't ready to finish her thoughts, then she could have waited and finished them. Yeah. So. So those are our final thoughts. We love you guys. And thank you to Caroline. We actually really enjoyed writing, doing this podcast with her. Yeah, I honestly had the best time. And Follow she her on TikTok specifically. Yes. And she wore a really cool outfit over here. So Good I think that's her. worth noting. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>